Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, April the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2195 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about growing food and balancing regenerative practicality and hard science. Uh, this is an, an interesting topic, and it's you know I've been challenged a few times with simple statements made by a person I very much admire in the world of permaculture. I won't name him today, but some of you will have no trouble figuring out who he is. Um, he's really an awesome dude, and he I like that he challenges me in some ways with some of his statements. But recently he said something to me to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, but pretty close to this, nothing or very little about aquaponics is regenerative. That, that aquaponics is maybe sustainable, but it's not regenerative in any way. I both agree and disagree with this statement, depending on how we examine it. And that's the kind of thing we're going to do today. Broader, though, there's many such dilemmas in the world of agriculture and permaculture today. Take GMOs, for instance. While I'm a staunch opponent of GMO, in the way that it's being implemented and used today to allow the depletion of soils, to spray toxins on our food, to, patent, to patenting life forms, etc. I can't deny that GMO could be useful if properly used and not seen as a way to ignore, ignore soil health, among other things. What about where you buy what you can't grow? Is organic really more regenerative or even less bad for the environment than conventional in most instances? Well, that's a big-ass depends, isn't it? If you're hunting, fishing, and growing your own meat, and even buying local meat when you can, should you never buy conventional meat due to simple necessity and, and, and economics? Or perhaps because you have a desire for something, you can't get another way. Should you just not allow yourself to have something? Should you feel shamed because you bought a piece of meat off of the supermarket shelf? Say you take a piece of a cattle panel, and you make a bean trellis with it. How long will it be before the calories from the beans exceed the energy needed to make the panel? Will it rust to the ground before that happens? Is that bad? If you do it, should you feel ashamed for using a product that works, is inexpensive, and will last a long time? What about ocean fish, for example? Are, are they being overfished? I think most honest people who've actually examined the situation that are just alarmists would say, we are better off on managing fish than we were, say, 40 years ago. I used to do a lot of fishing uh, as part of my job, honestly, because we had a, uh, uh, a partner that had a boat, and we used to take clients out on it for striped bass uh, off the coast of Rhode Island. And the striped bass population was incredible there. And the guys that ran the charter boat, uh, with very strict regulations, uh, told me flat out they used to be commercial line fishermen and that the striped bass were almost completely wiped out and now there was tons of them and they were allowing commercial fishing at very strict uh, tolerances and limits and the, the population was continuing to grow. So we're doing better. Uh, but, you know, we still are overfishing the totality of the oceans and in some ways, worse yet, the U.S. has a lot of common sense controls on fishing. So do uh, nations like, let's say, Canada, etc. But many other nations don't. They, they just go crazy with it uh, in international waters or in their own waters. And then we just buy their stuff, off-sourcing, offshoring the bad deed and feeling good about ourselves for managing the stuff within under our control. 
So now, full circle. Let's go back to aquaponics. If, if we produce 25 fish meals for our table a month, a year, right, and we don't buy that from the market, instead of buying 25 ocean fish, even if we buy some other ones, but 25 trips that would have went to the seafood counter at Albertsons or, you know, another store, Kroger's or what have you, we don't make those trips. We use the fish that we grew in our aquaponics system, you know, for a meal every other week. And then we take the burden off of that overfishing system. Does that change the math? Does that change the economics? Does that change the energy audit with the aquaponics system? See, I think we get into a world where a lot of things are really gray. And moreover, technology's not slowing down. And people that think we're not going to move into a more clean energy future, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. Uh, because there's... There's financial incentive to do so for purely selfish reasons. The companies in charge of creating energy will create it as cheaply as possible and cleanly as possible. They don't have to have a you know rather hard on their sleeve to do that. They, they've burned coal and oil and natural gas for a hundred years because it makes them money. If they have a way to make mo as much money or more money or even less money per unit but more money in total with less expense, they'll do it. For purely selfish reasons, that's going to happen. So how will cleaner energy that's coming impact all of these things? And I'm going to be doing a sort of self-conversation with this concept today, even to maybe call it self-debate on some levels, challenging myself with questions and dilemmas like these. And when I'm done with this, I would love to hear you guys come and give me your thoughts in the comments section for today's episode, which again is episode 2195, as I've finally gotten my numbers straight this week. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When no one was here, it was just me and a few of you, and I had a little bitty recorder and I was recording the show in my car, uh, Vikran Tala got in touch with me and said Safe Castle wanted to sponsor the show, and I actually told him no. Because we didn't have enough people that I, I didn't feel right about taking money from somebody. I, if I have somebody as a sponsor, I want them to feel that they're getting their money's worth or I don't want them. So about six months later, we had built up a show to, just, you know, five, six thousand people a day listening. And I felt that was a good time to enter into the world of taking sponsors. Vic was still waiting. He was happy to sponsor us. That's nine plus years ago now. And he's still here, and Safe Castle's still here. They have everything you could think of for your prepping needs, and you should check them out. And when you're making a decision about buying something for your preparedness needs, remember how long they've taken care of us and been with us. And remember, you can get their discount membership program uh, through the Member Support Brigade for free for life, and no one else anywhere can even get that program for life. Everybody else buys it for $29 a year. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. We're going to be talking about a lot of food production systems today, and I'm going to be encouraging you throughout the show to think about what you can produce for yourself. Now, once you produce all this fantastic food, some of it different than what you would buy in a store, how do you cook it? How do you come up with it? Last night, for instance, I went foraging, and uh, here's, here's a list of the stuff that I foraged off my property. Some of it I grew, some of it was wild, some of it's seasonal, some of it will be here throughout the whole year. But in a little five-minute walk, this is what we came up with, Dorothy and I. Wild, wild garlic flowers, nasturtium leaves, mint sprigs, black locust blossoms, pea tendrils, watercress, bloody dock, lamb's quarters, parsley, green onion, And some lettuces and stuff like butter, lettuce, romaine, spinach, Swiss chard, and lancinto kale. What are you going to do with that? Well, I had no trouble 
figuring out what to do with it. I made a salad out of it, but I could have come up with 10, 15 other things to do with it. Why? Because I, I believe in the same cooking philosophy that Chef Keith Snow does. You focus on the technique and the concepts of what foods go together and understanding how great flavors contribute to each other and having the right techniques to make when you're sautéing something or uh, if you're slicing something, doing that right, putting it together, that's what great chefs do. And if you do that, then it doesn't matter what's in front of you. You can always figure out what to do with it and make something exciting, new, and different. If you want to be able to do that consistently, get on over to HarvestEating.com. Consider taking one of Chef's courses. Consider you know, following him on his podcast, his YouTube channel, etc. And he's got some of the best herbs, spices, seasoning mixes you'll ever find. You can find everything and more over at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let me remind you before we get into today's show that if you like this show and you want to support the work we do, the best way to do that is become an MSB member, and now is the time. This is the best time ever to join the MSB, and you can join right now and use discount code TSP18. If you use the discount code again, TSP18, TSP18, you can get the MSB for $30 a year versus $50 a year. Now, the discount will only work for the one-year term. And you get to lock that rate in for life. So it's an awesome deal at $50 a year. It really is. I can't tell you how many people I hear from all the time that say, I wasn't sure about it, but when I started using the discounts and realized how many of the discounts would apply to me over a year, it's a no-brainer. If I make money on something, I'm not getting rid of it. And that's why my retention is as good as it is. And every once in a while, I want to kind of bring new blood into the MSB or get people that have fallen off the wagon back on board. So I'll run a sale like this. I don't run them often. This is the first one of the year like this. We did a very small number of people we let have lifetime membership opportunities earlier in the year. But we're all the way in April for a sale of the year. So I don't do it all the time. Take advantage of it while I do it. You can go online and just sign up. Use the discount code TSP18. Get it for 30 bucks a year. You can pay with cryptocurrency. You'll get instructions how to do that, and you just adjust the payment. I got an email from somebody today. You don't have ARK on your site, but you love ARK. Will you take a, I will take almost any cryptocurrency you have. Just fill out the form and email me and say, hey, I'm going to pay with this. What's the address to send it to? I'll do it. Uh, or you can pay by check, cash, money order, et cetera, by mail. Just write the membership on the form. If you pay with silver, we'll give you more time to balance things out. Again, the discount code is TSP18. And all of the service discount stuff, don't worry about it. Uh, this is a better discount than the service discounts that I give all the time to service members. Uh, so if you're looking to join today, this is the rate to get. Uh, one of the best rates you'll ever get, especially since it's not just for the first year. It applies to renewals. Those of you with existing accounts, please understand, I can't let you renew early. I'm not being like Verizon, new customers only. This is a limitation of my software in the payment system. If I let you renew early, you'll get a second account, and then you'll get billed twice in a row, and you'll get billed for time you paid for twice, and you'll be mad at me. So I, I can't do it that way. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry. That's a limitation of, of what I can do. Anyway, uh, sale ends Sunday at close of business, midnight. And doesn't matter if your dog ate your disc code, the sale is over, the sale is over. I believe if a sale doesn't have an integrity, it's not a sale. And if you don't have integrity, then you shouldn't ask people for money. So that's the way we run things. Anyway, hope you do consider becoming a member. This would be a good time to do it. So let's get into it, right? Let's talk about, let's start out with regenerative versus sustainable versus reduced impact and where the lines start to blur between them. So if we're doing something that's purely regenerative, whatever system we're touching is actually getting better. So if we find an old farm, it's been run down, and we start farming it, or we build a silvo pasture, or we just even say, you know what, I just want to turn this into woods again to hunt and fish on. 
and we start doing things and manipulating that system, where it's earthworks, whether it's soil conservation methodology, whether it's planting certain things, whether it's simply leaving it alone and being a protector of it, and it begins to return to something better than it has been brought down to. And again, that could be anything from a full-on like permaculture farm to restoring it to native woodlands. That is regenerative. Because the land was in a state of degeneration, and we have regenerated it to a healthier, more natural system. Sustainable would be that we take that same farm that's doing things very, very unsustainably, and we change the practices so that we can continue to farm that farm almost indefinitely. And that's the definition of sustainable. We can continue to operate there And in, in most instances, what that results in is what you would call less bad or reduced impact. And people that are very big on the regenerative concept, especially people that are more purist than I, I guess I am, would say that you know you want to be regenerative, not just sustainable or less bad, reduced impact. But here's my point. It is almost inevitable that if we take a piece of land and change the management practices of it, to make it more sustainable and reduce the negative impacts that were already going on, the land to some level will be regenerated. The question is, how far do we regenerate it before we say we've done enough or it's, it, it, it's now self-sustaining or what have you? And the answer is, it all always depends. How much land is there? How much freedom do we have with it? How much money do we have? How much time do we have? What is our knowledge and skill set? What are our goals? What do we want from the land? What does the land want from us? And it's, it's, it's not that simple. It's not as simple as people want to make it out to be, oh, well, you're doing that, so that's not good enough. Piss off. And that, has, that statement is not directed at the individual I mentioned at the beginning of the show. I, I love this guy. I really do. And, I, again, I like that I'm challenged on some levels. But I think that... When you start to take that approach, sometimes you start to lose sight of where the overlaps are. So if I take a conventional farm that's farming by conventional means, let's say, and I go in and I put in soil conservation methodologies that are completely sanctioned by USDA uh, and NRCS, and I'm still doing conventional farming, I am continuing to degenerate that piece of land by plowing it every year, multiple times a year, by dumping fertilizers on it, etc. There's no doubt I've done nothing to regenerate the land that's actually being farmed. But by, return, by conserving more of the soil, reducing the runoff, creating riparian areas, do I not allow, assuming they're there, these buffered areas that were being degenerated by the practice to recover, and are we not regenerating those? I'm not saying it's good enough for me, but I'm saying if we're going to honestly look at it, we have to start looking at that type of thing. Even slight modifications to conventional systems, if they're enacted properly, have a positive impact on surrounding areas. If we did that to every farm in the Mississippi River Valley, we simply went in and enacted the best conventional soil conservation practices available with the support of organizations like the National Resource Conservation Service, or NRCS, would we create a regenerative effect? Well, the sheer amount of uh, runoff that would not go into the Mississippi River 
would create a massive regenerative effect in the Mississippi River Delta where we have a dead zone every year. And so what we have to start coming at this is, can even a somewhat imperfect action have a far-reaching net positive result? And we shouldn't crap on the things that can happen, because you're not going to go transform all those farms into, you know, Mark Shepard-style New Forest Farms tomorrow. Growing chestnuts and hazelnuts and plums and pastured animals and alley cropping, you're not going to... It can be done, but you're, it's not going to happen. But it is conceivable that we could, with good policy, move to a situation where if you're running a farm and you're not practicing soil conservation, it's, it costs you more money. It's worth not to do it. We can do that. That is possible. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's probable. I'm saying it's very possible compared to let's turn everything into savanna-based uh, civopasture systems in the next 20 years. And if I could wave a wand and make that one thing happen, you bet I would have waved that wand a long time ago. Well, there are people who would say, well, no, it's not good enough. And, and there's people who say, well, I never compromise. And here's what I say about people that never compromise. You also never win. People that never compromise never win. You want to see that in action? Look at the Libertarian Party in, in the political spectrums. Never compromise, never win. And when they do compromise, they compromise stupidly. You know, they compromise their principles by putting two Republicans up for president instead of softening the message and putting up two true Libertarians for president. Or at least maybe they could get enough votes to, to make some sort of a, a change in how people think. Because they're not, they know they're not going to get elected, but they can't even win that battle. And that's what no compromise generally gets you in most situations. There are places for not compromising. It's not here. Let's examine some practices with an open mind. Some really controversial ones and some not so much. Let's start out with GMOs. Can any good come from GMOs? The people that argue pro-GMO will generally bring up what I consider a massive publicity stunt. Golden rice. Uh, the GMO companies got together and did an open source project without patenting that anybody can use to make this golden rice. Spent a lot of money doing it. This golden rice is golden because it has beta carotene in it, and they pointed out that there's places in the world where people rely on rice as a stable crop, and they're able to grow rice, yet they have a lot of nutritional blindness due to a deficiency in vitamin A. But nobody can... They, and we, we're saving people's lives. We're saving children from blindness, and you want to stop it because you're anti-science. But no one can show me anywhere that we're growing this stuff in quantity, and it's actually saving people from blindness. Because the practices of the company don't match the storyline of the marketing. And then it gets worse. In the United States, we have these, these crops that are, are, are modified so they can be sprayed with herbicides. Those herbicides are sprayed on the field after those crops emerge, and they don't die. But it's during the growth phase of the plant, so the plant actually sucks the herbicide up into it. And it's damaging human beings. We also have genetic modifications that make the plants more resilient in less fertile soil. But we still dump tons of fertilizer that go into our aquifers and systems like that. The bigger problem is, you know all that stuff I said about soil conservation? Yeah, a whole lot more of it would be getting done if these technologies weren't being used to lessen the need to preserve soil. If you, you know, if you can understand that, it's the truth. So... And then we take and we patent a life form, which I'm totally opposed to. And some of these companies, like Monsanto being the worst of the ilk, but they're all bad, are going to third world nations 
getting their seed into the agricultural systems, getting the farmers to take money from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and turning them into sharecroppers on their own land and locking them into a seed that they cannot save like they've done for generations. So if you want somebody to defend Monsanto or ConAgra or somebody like that, you're looking at the wrong guy. But that wasn't the question. I said, can any good come from genetic modification to plants? I think it can. If it was done smartly. If it was done smartly. And I won't even get into a lot of specifics because I want to cover a lot of things today. But, for instance, American chestnut blight. There's work being done. It looks like it will eventually be successful with genetic modification of the American chestnut to restore the American chestnut that we destroyed by bringing the Chinese chestnut that was a blight carrier here. And I've had people get very upset about that. Well, we already have chestnuts that are 98% American chestnut, only 2% Chinese, and done through. Dude, they're not the same. They're not. They're just not the same. They're not the trees that grow 120 feet tall and are so big around, three guys can't put their arms around them. They're the bushy damn things. They're not growing wild in forests, like they, and they're supposed to be. They were there. The same thing with the chingapin which is like the chestnut's little cousin or brother, I guess. If we can restore that, should we? I don't know. But I'm at least open to the possibility. There's some of the most cutting-edge stuff that, I hate to use their name in any positive way, but Monsanto is doing is no longer even genetic modification. It's rather advanced genetic selection. One of the lies the GMO people say is that, well, mankind has been doing genetic modification to agricultural crops for 10,000 years. When somebody says that, they're either parroting it and they don't know any better. But if it's coming from an informed source, they're lying through their teeth and they know it. That's not genetic modification. Looking at a field of corn and picking the corn to save for seed that came out first, was the biggest, was the most pest resistant, is not GMO. It's selective breeding. Well, the most advanced thing that Monsanto's doing now is gene analysis sequencing, where they can predict which seeds to save before they're even produced by examining the DNA of the parent stock and accelerating genetic selection. Now, again, they'll patent it. They'll ruin people's lives with it. They'll add their chemical mix to the shit. And I'm opposed to that. But let's take the bane of existence for gardeners. Zucchini squash and squash vine borers and squash bugs. If you could use genetic selection or modification, either or, responsibly without patenting life forms and taking possession of life forms and without stacking your chemical bullshit into it and make a zucchini plant that's highly resistant, if not if not immune, to squash, squash borers and squash vine borers and, and squash bugs, would that not be beneficial? Would that not return us to the place that used to be where people would throw zucchini in people's backseat of their car to try to get rid of them? Because I don't remember the squash bugs and vine borers being this bad in the past but they have been for 20 years. I think there's a lot of other reasons that's the case. But would that not make sense if it's not used as an excuse to ignore these other things? So my view of, of genetic modification and advanced gene selection, which is not GMO. GMO is we alter the genetics. We go in and we change the genetics in a way that could never happen in nature. Genetic selection is we choose what to reproduce Advanced genetic selection is we use very sophisticated science to predict what to reproduce and therefore accelerate the selection process. I think all of those can be used responsibly. I just don't trust any of the corporations doing it to do so. 
That's my thought on that one. How about soil conservation even with conventional farming? We talked about this a bit. But what I want to do is kind of stick up for conventional farmers a little bit. When I actually got out and went into farm country and talked to farmers who are farming, I heard them talk badly about people doing it really badly. Like, oh, that guy up there, man, all his stuff's washing away, and he's going to get fined. So there are practices being put into place right now to do exactly what I said. That doesn't mean it's being done enough or sufficiently or everywhere, but in many locations they are now putting that soil conservation into much more advanced practice. Sometimes through the issuance of grants, but sometimes through fines. And again, I don't want government doing this stuff, but government is doing this stuff. I'm down to you know the practicality, the pragmatic concept. So if we if we can reduce soil erosion. There's a lot of things that happen there. When you buy a farm, the number one thing you're buying is topsoil. That's where all the stuff grows. That is your number one asset on a farm, is the soil and the quality of the soil. The worse the quality of the soil, the more chemicals and amendments need to be applied to the soil. If we reduce the erosion, we reduce the inputs. That's good financially for the farmer, and it's good for the environment, even in a conventional system. Is that regenerative? Again, on the land that it's being done on, very little to no. Probably a negative. We're reducing soil erosion. We still have soil erosion. We're not actively building soil at any meaningful level. We have not, we have not done any restoration to that piece of land. But if it's done on a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand farms, And the runoff that was being created into the streams, the rivers, the valleys, the oceans is reduced significantly. Those systems regenerate themselves. This is a lot like whatever's true in a negative can be true in an analogy to something else in a positive. So one of the criticisms of electric cars, which we're not going to get deep into today, but there's valid and invalid criticism in there because some people just hate the idea. And they'll, they'll believe anything negative. And some people love the idea so much they'll believe anything positive. And that's true in all the things we're talking about today. But one of the arguments against electric cars is they just have longer tailpipes. Yeah, okay, it's an electric car. That's fine. But a giant excavator put a giant scar on the face of the earth to extract lithium that was then shipped and created all these other byproducts to make the batteries for it. By the way, somewhere, someplace... A plant is chugging away burning coal or coke or uh, natural gas or oil or running nuclear power, creating nuclear waste to provide the electricity that goes in that car. And therefore, the waste footprint of that car is a lot bigger than it looks like when we just look at the car. Well, if that's true in that direction, then the positive action over here can have that's very minor might have a magnified net positive somewhere else. And soil conservation is one of the places where that's really, really true. Again, if you want to fix the dead zone problem in the Mississippi rivers, it can all be done with earthworks. We can still be completely irresponsible in many ways in, our, in, in how we take care of things otherwise, and we can still largely restore that ecosystem. And again, I know what people say, well, that's not enough. But it's a start. But it's a start. And it creates a chain reaction of effects. Um, let's talk about raising quail. One of the real criticisms I got years ago with quail was, you know, putting quail in a cage is not regenerative. Well, is it or isn't it? 
It depends. It really depends on how we evaluate it. So if we use quail to produce meat, and we use reasonable sourcing for the feed that they're given, and we get eggs, and then our use of meat and eggs there doesn't contribute to the system that we find to be the most offensive, the conventional system, we've reduced what we're doing there. We've had less impact. Well, less impact, if you multiply it by enough people, reduces their overall actions. If you reduce their overall actions sufficiently, their impact is reduced, and on the edges of their impact, you begin to have natural restoration. It, it, it is a very simple chain reaction. But what if we're taking all of that quail poop and quail litter and we're giving the quail leftovers and letting them process it much like chickens and then we're taking that and going into a worm bin with it and we're making high quality compost and we're feeding that to our garden improving soil life, growing biomass that's then being composted back well that piece of land's being restored those quail are part of it even though they're not on it can we make that better? Can we tractor them? Sure that's why we built the quail tracker I mean it's I mean, you get that, right? I mean, like, that's why we had progression forward. But I don't want the person that, that says, you know, I could keep a couple dozen quail in my garage to say, well, I'm not going to do that because it's a quail CAFO. If you've ever been to a real, real CAFO, a couple dozen quail in a couple stack cages is not anything like a CAFO. And people that say it are just, in some cases, in my, my situation, adult adolescents that hate me. But there's also people that really believe it because they're blind to reality. If you've never been to a CAFO, if you've never seen chickens up to their wingtips and shit, or cattle standing literally up above their kneecaps in their own shit, while they're being force-fed grain for the last two miserable weeks of their life, and then you want to say that somebody that's doing what we just described, that's taking good care of their animals, that's giving them high-quality feed, that's properly managing their waste, is running a CAFO, you are either just a spiteful ass... Or you're just completely, ridiculously non-pragmatic. I will never compromise, and you will never win. And you're probably not living the way that you claim you are either. Your impact is probably bigger than the person you're criticizing. So in every situation, when we look at a system or a technology or a technique or a tactic, we have to look how it plugs into everything else that we're doing around it, and what is the overall impact of that? The reduction of draw on the system that we don't want plus the outputs and the results of the things that we're doing on the system that we do want. Aquaponics. You know, I mean, the person that I mentioned in this uh, at the beginning has a valid point. In many ways, you can look at aquaponics and say there's nothing regenerative about it because everything is in a self-contained system. It utilizes products and components that draw energy, um, and it's not building soil. Well, my aquaponic systems are building soil. Absolutely building soil. Because the, the, the peak season production is so much that I have to feed components of it to my livestock that are shitting it out, which is being used to, to build soil. I had a single bed last year, a 14-gallon paint tray that was producing about a half a bushel of a high-quality green called water spinach every two to two and a half weeks. I mean, I was bringing a wheelbarrow full of the stuff to my ducks. There's one bed in a system with 20 beds in it. And those birds were eating that and processing that and depositing it into the soil that now is restored all across my property. 
And the ducks have gone elsewhere to other people's property to be part of their ecosystems. So in that instance, we're building soil. How much production comes out of that system? For a single relatively low draw pump. Yeah, there's racks in there and wood. and But again, how much of that food are we not buying from the grocery store and not buying from the conventional agriculture systems? And those energy inputs, much like earthworks, happen a single time. What it took to make that IBC or what it took to make that stock tank or what it took to make that rack that holds the thing up elevated so it'll return or the PVC pipe, whatever, that input is a single input one time. Then it has a life expectancy. The life expectancy of a, a stock tank, longer than yours. Life expectancy of a piece of PVC pipe, depends. But in most instances, decade or more. So how, how, do, how do we then say that when we're, we're taking actions like that, we're not contributing to improvement of the entire ecosystem? There's so many variables that have to be considered in there if we're going to be honest. Again, reducing our impact. So last year, we processed about 50 tilapia out of that system. Many of them are still in my freezer. So if we decide we want fish this week, I have a couple of decisions I can make. One, I can go out and fish. Two, I can go to the store and buy fish. Three, I can go to my freezer, pull them out and eat them. Four, I can go to the tilapia we held over. There's about 40 in the system now, but I won't touch them because they're going to be twice as big by the end of this season and grow a hell of a lot more food for me. Or I can pull some of the bluegills out of my system and eat them, which are infinitely sustainable because they grow in every pond and ditch and, and park pond out there. And in many places where we would take them from, they're in such abundance that we're actually making the ecosystem better by removing some of them from it. And when they die, we, we bury them in a bed, and then they contribute to the soil, and that reduces how much we take from the fertilizer world, even on the organic side of things. All of these things tie together. You can't look at any one of these things as an... And it's the same... It's funny that we do this sometimes to ourselves when it's the, it's the conventional science world that tries to break down permaculture, regenerative agriculture, to looking at a single factor... And therefore, they said there's no gain, but, okay, well, they looked at, you know, key line plowing. But they looked at key line plowing in absence of all the other things that are supposed to go with it and determined it wasn't, wasn't very much different. The same depleted soil, while they continued to, you know, chemicalize it, etc. Or maybe even didn't chemicalize the, the experimental, but chemicalize the control to make up for its deficiencies. And that's what we're doing. We're saying, well, okay, and we, you know, if you look at aquaponics, okay, so what do those fish eat? Well, yes, they eat conventional feed to a degree. But a little food goes a long way with a fish. They have a lot better of a feed conversion ratio and a lot better growth rate than a cow. However, what else do those fish eat? <clears throat> we have systems set up to knock bugs in there, and they eat bugs. The tilapia eat vegetation. You know that same stuff I was feeding the, uh, the ducks? You, know, you take a couple handfuls of that and put it in there, and they shred it to, to nothing, and it's got high protein in it. They eat duckweed. So we go to the tank that doesn't have any tilapia or koi in it, and we take a big scoop of duckweed out and throw it in with the tilapia. They devour it. Or throw it in with the koi, and they devour it. And they're there for waste production and to be pretty. And that duckweed will grow back in 48 hours. The duckweed we took out 48 hours later is there again. We can feed it to them again. It's running off the same system. We have another tank. It's full of minnows. They're starting to breed like crazy right now. In another month or two, the thing will be teeming with minnows to the point of overpopulation. Walk by, take a net, 
dip it out, throw it into the one that has the bluegills. Now their feed requirements are reduced. What are the, what are the minnows eating? They're eating algae and vegetation. The system is growing for itself. If, if we don't look at that totality, then how do we sit there and criticize that system as being a negative? And then we don't look again at, okay, well, what are, what are the results of all that food not being drawn from the conventional system? If we could put a thousand systems like that, or a hundred thousand systems like that into place. Remember I said that you're more likely to get basically soil conservation enacted on all the farms in the Mississippi River Valley than you are to get all of those farms, or even 10% of those farms in the next 20 years to convert to a civil pasture savanna model like Mark Shepard? Okay. Well, you're even more likely to get a hundred thousand people to build systems like that are sitting in my backyard. A lot more likely. So what's the impact of that? My impact is very low as an individual. The fact that I don't buy you know, a couple hundred meals a year from the system it doesn't move the needle when you look at the total volume. But if you can do that for 100,000 or 200,000 people, it starts to move the needle. And every time we start to pull pressure off that system, again, the damage they do is not just where they are. The damage they do extends beyond their own boundaries. And when we reduce that impact, systems naturally regenerate. You can see that in Chicago with abandoned buildings, with trees growing through them. Trees growing on the fifth floor of a building through the roof on the eighth floor. With no soil. Well, there's soil now because the system made its own soil. But the tree started growing. I saw a documentary on this on the Learning Channel. And a tree started growing on the concrete floor of the fifth floor of this building. Or the eighth floor of this building was going out the tenth floor. Blew a hole through it. The, 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 what they said in that documentary is, you know, if nobody does anything, in the next 20 years, pretty much these trees will eat the buildings. Break them down. Turn, turn this abandoned area into a forest. So if that can happen, we have to look at the totality of things here. Let's look at the average garden. How much good does it really do? The, look, see, that's a big, it depends on what's an average garden. Is that one dude with a 4 by 4 square foot garden with 16 different plants growing in it? Or is that your average gardener? Is your average gardener probably have like 4, 4 by 8 beds? I mean, what is an average garden? When I was a kid, where I grew up in the sticks... Rural Pennsylvania, an average garden probably consisted of about eight to ten rows that were about twenty-five feet long by three to four feet wide. Pretty good size. A lot of stuff comes out of there. Isn't each one of those different in the impact that it has, in the totality of the impact that it has? Is that average garden being done conventionally, you know, true green chemlon style, or are we using good quality organic amendments and building soil at the same time? Does that garden lead that person into a new lifestyle where they start to think about all of the things that they're doing and lessen their impacts and how many of them are there? Because the truth of the matter is, if the average garden is four four by eight beds and a family producing some of their own food, it's wonderful for them and it may very well be regenerative for their little piece of land. Especially if they're adding things like herbs and flowering perennials and bringing in pollinators and providing habitat, it may be. But on the on the grand scale, and this is where we need to be honest with ourselves. It doesn't move the needle. The the giant corporations that that run agriculture 
won't notice a difference, and the fish that die every year in the dead zone around the Mississippi Delta won't notice a difference. But if there's a million of those gardens, then the combined effects of, of that affect everything. And that's why you see conventional agriculture getting upset for all the bad that they did, the Obamas, right? When, when First Lady Michelle Obama put in an organic garden and the conventional agriculture people got upset. Because it was highly publicly visible, and gee, more people might do this. And we shouldn't just, you know, we shouldn't negatively talk about the average food that the average person eats. I've even heard the ridiculous argument that by pointing out that organic practices produce a better quality food as far as having less toxins in it for the person consuming it, we may have hungry people become hungrier because they're going to be afraid to eat the conventional food. Just go to a grocery store and look at the difference between the organic section and the conventional section. Stand in the produce section for 20 minutes with your mouth shut and watch what people buy, especially on a busy day like a Sunday. And you realize what a stupid, illogical, nonsensical, bullshit argument that is There's because no one seems to be afraid of it. There's no starving people on food stamps that are not buying food because it's not organic and they can't afford it. It's just bullshit. So why would they say something so stupid? Because you might listen and think, eh, Because all they're doing is playing on apathy. That's why. Because, well, it doesn't really matter if I start a garden. On the macro, it doesn't. On the micro, it does. So do it for yourself. And enough people do the micro, then the macro gets affected. And they're afraid of that. They're afraid. Because this is what I don't think people understand. If you owned a multi-billion dollar company, and last year, because you owned that multi-billion dollar company, your company made a profit of $38 billion dollars. And this year you found out your company is going to make $37 billion. You probably wouldn't give two shits from the square root of F all. Who cares? The way our system's set up, this is a disaster. Investors start pulling out. Dividends go down. Is the company in recession? Merger, acquisition stock? I mean, the system we're in requires continuous growth, which in of itself is contradictory to regeneration because... If you have continuous growth, you cannot be sustainable. And that's why they're afraid of something that might even take away 1% or 2% of the market itself, not their market share. See, that's what really scares the shit out of them. If your Conagra and Bear takes 1% of your market, you could get it back next year. If the market itself shrinks, because less people want what you're doing and selling, it starts a cascading effect. For all the good that capitalism does, well, we don't have capitalism. We have crony capitalism. We have crony capitalism mixed with an artificial enforced oligarchy and plutocracy. And when you get that mixed in together with basically the underlying component to our economic system is fascism, with the painting of capitalism on the outside, run by a consumerist economy on planned obsolescence, and recurrent revenue based on consumables, and you take 1% or 2% out of that, you go into the recession. And you know what? We have to. If we're going to fix this, we, that whole thing has to change. And that gets changed based on demand. They can only cheat the actual free market so much. When the demand declines, that has to adjust on the other side eventually. They can cheat it for a while, but only for so long. So you make the choices and the changes where you can and not let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, what about buying choices? 
buying local, organic, conventional, etc. How do those? Each individual one of them don't make that big a difference. It's when they're cumulative that they make a difference. But I'm not going to fault somebody who, let's say, buys as much local as he can and then says, what I can't get local, if I can afford it, I'll buy organic. But you know what? Damn it, I want to make baby back ribs for my, my family today. And there's nobody locally selling them. And there's not an organic product available where I shop or I can't afford it. And I'm going to buy these baby back ribs and I'm going to make baby back ribs for my family tonight. I'm not following that guy. Especially if he's doing a lot of these other things. Because his impact is so much less than someone that that's their standard practice. And we've gotten almost snob-like, I think, on some levels. You know, materials we use in our projects, like plastic and metal, etc., whether they're recycled or not. Uh, the, the same person that, that kind of launched this episode is the same person who one time said to me, well, I just took a cattle panel and made a bean trellis out of it. But, you know, that's really wasteful. He's lamenting his own action. Because that thing will never produce enough beans to pay for the energy that went to extruding that wire and welding it together. Well, maybe, maybe not. How are we looking at it? Number one, did you install it in such a way that it's going to last for 20 years or more? Because you can install that in a way where it's you know, ground contact, it's going to rust a lot quicker. We can do some things with it where it's going to last 20 years, 30 years. And hell, it might produce enough calories just in beans alone. But what are those beans doing? Well, they're growing out of the soil. Well, what are they doing to that soil? Well, they're a legume. So they're, they're nitrifying the soil. They're fixing nitrogen. So is anything else growing down? Are we taking the vertical space to free up the horizontal? What did you put in the horizontal? And when we start looking at that, it's a whole different energy. We call them permaculture an energy audit. How much energy went into that panel versus what went on down here. Now, did you cause another panel to be created? If you went out and bought a hundred of them, you probably caused you know a hundred of them to be created. But when you look at, let's say, tractor supplies across the country, there's tons of those things sitting forever in parking lots without me not seeing them be resupplied anytime soon. A lot of that stuff might sit there forever just in inventory if somebody doesn't use it. Did you get it from a neighbor who already used it, who already bought it anyway? Now it's recycled. Now now that energy audit is completely different. That, that You've not created a new one. Same thing with you know aquaponics. We use rubber-made structural foam stock tanks in our systems in many instances. Why? Because they'll last for 50 years. They have built-in components uh, as far as uh, bulkheads and stuff like that. They basically bolt right in. You can tell somebody how to do it. They can get their own at a store uh, 100 miles away, 1,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away, and build a comparable system and have it work. There's a lot of advantage there. They're also expensive. It's not like we really want to do that all the time. So, for instance, I have a new project I want to do. It's going to be an aquatic system with wicking beds around it. So there's going to be very little ebb and flow in it. It'll have enough ebb and flow in it for filtration for the pond. The pond will use float valves to push water to wicking beds, which will be static instead of flow through, through wicking beds, most likely. I haven't decided yet. But if I were to use the Rubbermaid stock tanks, I need 10 of those. Now, 10 of those is uh, they're about 80 bucks a piece, $800. A friend of mine emailed me and said, hey, I found these, these, these tanks, which, by the way, have a surface area about 1.5 times bigger than the the stock tanks, about one and a half, maybe 1.6, 1.7 even maybe, more surface area. And they're 30 bucks. 
Do you think they'd work as wicking bets? I said, you're damn right I do. Do you want to sell any of them? Sure, how many need? Ten. Okay, yeah, I'm getting them for thirty. I'll give them to you for thirty. Okay. So now I went from spending eight hundred to spending three hundred. I could make that decision a hundred percent for financial reasons and still have an, a positive environmental impact. How? Okay, the guy that found them was driving around out by where he lives, looks out and sees a big pile of these fiberglass tanks sitting there. Goes up and asks the owner, like, what are these and what are you doing with them? He said, oh, they're, they're old containers that were used for molasses, for cattle feed. And we used to sell them, but nobody seems to want them anymore, so they're just laying there. Well, how much you want for them? 30 bucks a piece. I'll take them all. Okay. Now, that product's going to sit there, has been made, and when that product goes into our system, it literally, in my view, has no environmental impact. Most Most aquaponics people are using what? IBCs. Almost nobody goes out and orders brand new IBCs to do an aquaponics system. You find a product that's exceeded its useful life in, in the industry that it was in, that's food grade, and you recycle it. And you save it from a landfill. That changes everything. Another one that we got a lot of shit, especially from the adult adolescents about, was making cider from cheap apple juice. And it was amazing to me, some of these people. And some of them, like, they're really just ass clowns and you don't need them in your life and they've been blocked and banished to oblivion. And a couple of them on the edges, they're actually decent people that have a difference of opinion. And I can always get along with people like that. They're decent, reasonable, logical people that have a different opinion. I'm not going to say, you're an idiot, I don't ever want to talk to you. That's, that's asinine to be that way. That means you can't defend your position. That's what that means. So this one guy in particular said of this other guy that I wrote off, well, you know, if you hung out with him, maybe he'd make you a decent beer. He's pretty good at that. And you guys might agree with more than you don't agree on. I agree there, but, you know, instead of that crappy cider you're making. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting, isn't it? So he's a, he's a, a, a home brewer, and I'm bad for using treetop apple juice, but he's a home brewer. By the way, I know he's an extract brewer. So he's buying wheat or barley or rye-based extract that was grown conventionally in grain fields and then underwent a process to make malt extract, which is extremely energy-intensive. He's also buying uh, processed hop product, you know, hop pellets or what have you. And I'm not putting – I used to do it too. I'm just saying let's compare apples to beer, all right? And so those hops are being conventionally grown. And then he's taking that and he's boiling it for an hour to extract the acid from the hops. Pitching yeast, letting it do its thing, bottling his beer. Okay? Conversely, even if we're buying conventional apple juice, we're buying a product that was grown in an orchard. Now, you tell me what you think has a greater negative impact on the environment, grain farming or tree farming. Isn't tree farming what we're trying to get everybody to do? But they're doing it conventionally. I know. I would prefer that they did it in other ways. But in the end, is are we are we not all in lockstep agreement that an orchard has less environmental negative impact than the grain field that you're getting your beer from? Okay, then what do they do once they get those apples? They squeeze them. They heat them to 165 degrees and bottle them. Send them to the store. I go buy it. Unlike the grain extract, where that grain is harvested, then goes to a processing facility and uses a much greater amount of energy 
either in gas or electricity, to convert it into an extract form that you can mix into the water that you have to boil. Now we get the apple juice, we dump it into the fermentation tank, maybe we heat up enough water to dissolve two cups of sugar, we dump that in, we pitch our yeast and let it do its thing, we have almost no energy into that, And then the person making the beer, again, I'm not putting making beer down. I'm just saying if we're gonna, if that person's going to criticize the cider, let's examine what they're doing. And they're going to boil that for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, burning electricity or gas to do that. Which one of those two has a greater environmental impact to the negative? Then we take the jug that we made the cider from, and we recycle it and reuse it and repurpose it. Whether we do what I do and use it as a fermenter, we just fill up with water, put it on the shelf, and it's your water storage. It's food grade, it lasts for damn near ever, and when it's exceeded its life expectancy, that plastic container is 100% recyclable. There's a symbol on it right now. I'm looking at one. See, and this is how I'm saying we have to evaluate things. I'm not making a case that the greatest thing you can do for the environment is make cheap cider. But I am making the case that it's less impactful than making your own beer or buying beer that somebody else made. Because that brewery doesn't use extract, but they have to do a mashing process. It's very energy intensive to convert that grain into a starch that will ferment, actually do a sugar that will ferment. They have to sprout it, and they have to run a conversion process on it. It's called malting and, and, and conversion. Then they have to ferment it. They have to boil it, the same thing that we do, to get those hop acids in there. So, which one of those practices is worse? And then, how can you have the one person who absolutely has the worst process criticizing the other because it seems easy to do on the surface? And the reason I save that one for the last out of these examples is, we all do this. We don't do it just in ag, either. We do it everywhere. We do it in every political debate, etc. And it's more important that we take and deconstruct the concept. And if we do that, we start to maybe see we have a lot more in common with each other than, than we thought otherwise. Don't think the farmers of this country want to destroy the planet. You know, the average farmer's age, I don't know what it is now, but I know like four or five years ago when I listened to Joel Salton speak, and I have no reason to doubt him, it was 66. So that would mean the average farmer today is 68, 69, 70 years old. They've been making a living their whole life doing what the nice man from the Ag Extension Service said and the chemical guy and the fertilizer and seed guy said. They know their farm is going to get handed down to their heirs. They've set it up to a point where they know that the processes in place work good enough that hired labor will keep the farm in the family at this point. All those farms being lost, not so much anymore. That all happened in the 70s and 80s. These big farms today, these big concerns today, they tend to stay or the family sells them off to a conglomerate and they know if they leave it that way, the family will be able to do that if they don't want to farm. So how, how do you get that person to change? And the answer is you're not going to. We also, you know, we need, to, we need to be honest and say, well, what might the future technology impacts be on this? Does it not change everything that we're doing if, if energy becomes more clean, abundant, and cheap? And I think that's the way we're going. Everything we're doing is becoming more abundant and cheaper. Anything produced in quantity, that's a price curve. It's been going on for hundreds of years. It's not going to change. The only question is, can it become cheaper? And I think that it can. I think we've examined solar and wind and other alternative forms of, of energy production enough to realize that all the naysayers are right and wrong. They're right because the, the people pumping the positive are overly optimistic on the timeline. 
The naysayers are wrong because they're using the word that you should never use when it comes to innovation. Never. The only purpose of the word never is to say never use never, in my opinion. Or or to to point something out that's that's completely obvious when somebody doesn't see it. But when you say that when it comes to the world of evolution of technology, that we will never get to the point where we can, then you're probably wrong. I guess it's like, well, we'll never be able to beam people through space like they don't do on Star Trek. That may be true. But I wouldn't make a claim. You know, I will never do it in my lifetime. Ah, yeah, I'll make that claim. But then no one will never, ever be able to do it. It's not possible. Things like that. I, I think we need to understand that we're going to see technology evolve in our lifetimes in ways we still can't even imagine yet, especially from an energy production thing. And we need to think about how we harness that and channel it back into the systems that are out there. I also wonder maybe should we should revisit like a really simple idea I had a long time ago, and I probably tried to make it too complex. It was called the 10% Project. The 10% Project was simple. Transform 10% of America's trees, bushes, shrubs, and vines throughout suburban, suburban America today into something that's productive. Get people to take the Bradford pear down and put in a, a Japanese actual pear that has fruit on it. You know, get people to plant some perennial herbs that are pretty in their flower garden and use them. Get people to look at that wisteria vine and put in a grapevine. And not 100%. Not everybody... Ter Because, see, that's the thing. The average person out there, whether you want to accept it or not, they don't want to live the way that we do. This concept that you're going to produce, you know, a bunch of their own food, they really don't care for that. But if it's like, well, I can be part of this thing that helps out and I can, what, put a fig tree back there? I like figs. And you get to you, you, the economy that you would create from that, from people doing that. Not everybody's going to plant the same thing. So all of a sudden, this guy that planted an apple tree five years ago has a basket of apples. This person has a basket of pears, and this person has a basket of figs. You don't think they're going to start trading with each other? It won't even be an economy if you look, because it'll almost look like gifting. It's still an economy. There is such thing as a gifting economy. That's what happens when you have abundance. And that's what you're talking about creating there. So I, I wonder if we should recreate that. And I, I wanted to build this site where people could register for an account and say what they planted and how it was doing and what variety they used. And everything I've ever seen anybody successfully do like that failed. They successfully built it no one uses. It's too complicated. But, you know, we created the Regen Ag Group on Facebook. Maybe we just need a 10% project group. I think I still have a couple of domains where I just redirect it over there. Maybe even make a little five-page informational site about it but let it run on Facebook. And there's other people stand up and say, I'm doing it. This could be done. Corporations could take part in it. We're going to replace 10% of our landscaping with edibles. Schools, we're going to replace 10% of our landscaping with edibles. They already have the space. Most of them already have the irrigation. And yeah, they're going to fertilize with freaking, you know, true green Kemlon crap. So what? Isn't it better to grow food there than to not grow food there? And does that start to lead people? Because what happens is when a lot of people do something... It gets popular, so even more people do it. And when a lot of people are doing something going in a direction, it is natural that some percentage of those will take it a little further. We start that walk. We start getting that infant to pull itself up and start to walk in the right direction. And when the baby falls down, we don't go, hey, stupid baby, you don't know how to walk, you might as well get back in your crib. We help them back up and say, keep going. That's the approach we need to be taking here. So I'm thinking about bringing that back. It would be an easy thing to do.
I also want to say that in spite of some of the stuff I said today, I think individual actions, even imperfect ones, have the largest impact in the macro. And what I mean by that is, if you get people doing, a lot of people doing a little bit, you can have a greater impact than you'll ever have from trying to reestablish what policy is with USDA. Because the individual is free to make the decision, and many of the decisions are easy and low impact and actually beneficial. So the farmer has a hard time making a decision to do this. First of all, I'm trusting something that I don't understand. I'm 60 years old or older, and I got to do something and learn something new, and I don't want to. Additionally, I'm getting subsidies from the government that I'll lose. I have a family that I want to leave this down to, etc. Okay, so that's a difficult decision to make. Compare that to the housewife that says, gee, now that I lost my job to automation, but we've adjusted and balanced things to where I can stay home with the kids and I'm homeschooling the kids. And the old man still has a job, at least for now. Maybe it'd be a good idea to put a garden in. You know, we don't need raised beds. We need a shovel and some seeds and a hose and some leaves for mulch. How easy is that decision to make and implement? And what else does it lead to? Talk 10% project. Guy looks at his house. He's got 10 perennial plants in the landscaping. If he wants to be part of the 10% project, he has to replace or add one. How hard is it for him to make the decision to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy a peach tree and dig a hole and stick it in there? And if he's got an irrigation system, it's probably going to lift. He's probably going to plant it too deeply. It's probably not going to do as good as it could. But maybe his tree will start to look so good, and maybe he'll look up like, how do I fix this? Find the dirt doctor, pull some dirt off of the roots, spray it with some freaking garret juice, and all of a sudden he's got peaches. How easy is that to implement? Compare that to, on a policy level, how hard do you think it is to change USDA, to change policy, to require soil conservation practices that would fix the Mississippi Delta. Which one is easier? So it's so much easier for the individual to make a decision and to make a shift than it is for the industry or the large-scale components to make a shift that the cumulative effects of these small changes are much easier to set in motion and have a much more dramatic impact, which then begins to create a situation where the consumer who did these changes, starts to demand something different from industry, and that's its own butterfly effect. little tiny thing that magnifies as it moves and gets bigger and bigger. The pebble that we drop into the pond, the little ring that comes out and ends up going 100 or 200 or 300 yards and being hundreds of feet in diameter by the time it gets there. It's still a tiny ripple, but it still has an effect. That's the approach that we're taking. When we take this analysis and we start to take it seriously and teach others about it and do it in our own lives. And I think we have to look at our total impact versus just individual components. Well, this person does this. Well, what is, what is, what, what is the totality of what they do? Did they take 10 acres and terraform it and now you're pissed off that they went out and bought a steak at a restaurant? I, I don't think you're seeing the totality of what's going on then. You know, if a person planted a thousand trees and they chose to make a a, uh, a, a a cattle panel into a bean trellis, if that bean never, the beans never pay back the trellis, 
how much energy embodied is there in that 10 acres that they've transformed and terraformed? What is their total impact? What is their total footprint on this, on this concept? How many other people looked at it and went, holy crap, if he can do that, I can do this one little thing. They created another person that looked. You see, we have to start seeing that total impact and, and, and stop being so microcosmic that we're worried about this one thing. Well, that thing was made in a factory. Well, that person's using a well to pump water for irrigation. I do that, and I use less water every year. And I could have been a purist and said, well, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to sit here on this, this limestone slab, and I'm going to trust nature. Trusting nature is fine, but you got in expecting nature to work, that's fine. Working with nature is fine. you got to give nature something to work with. You know, We accelerated this system by 20 years by pumping some water out of the ground, which we're putting probably at this point with all of the earthworks, we're probably putting more water in the ground than we'll ever take out. We just choose to take it at the time that we need it to establish systems or to get through dry periods. But every time we get an inch of rainfall, just in one system alone we have here, 26,000 gallons of water that would have went down the road goes into the ground. 26,000 gallons in one system. So when we choose to pump four or 5,000 gallons over the summer, how many times did we put that 26,000 into the aquifer to take the 5,000 out? If we put enough into the battery, we can take plenty from it and still have a full charge. That's the magic of these systems. And then the real question is, how do we make more people want to do these things? I mean, that's the real question. How do we make more people want to do these things? Well, we have to have, we have, to have soft entry points. We have to have little simple things a person can do. You know, it makes me think of preparedness, how to get people on board with preparedness. One of the things my wife said when, when I started pushing us in this direction... And this was all the way back like prior to Y2K. This is leading up to Y2K. And I never bought into Y2K for a minute. But this is way before I started the show. And all it did was make me look at things and remember my roots as a country boy, as a prepper who we never called ourselves preppers. We just lived in rural areas. And you were prepared for things. And you grew a garden and you saved your food. And you hunted and you preserved what you hunted. And all that good stuff. And, and go, man, I've really lost it over 10 years of chasing a career. This is stupid. We're dead. Like, okay, we need to fix this shit. The same stuff I've been teaching for 10 years, 10 years before it, I started doing it. And when I brought that up to her, she said, well, maybe we should go get a couple gallons of water. And I did the dumbest thing I could have done. I said, well, that won't do us any good if something goes wrong. It's not enough. What I should have said is, and I, I learned real quick <laughs> to always encourage that baby step. After that, I, I thought about it. She didn't even get mad. It just shut her down. And I ended up going back and saying, you know what, you were right. We probably should get a couple gallons of water next time we're in the store. And that put us in partnership. right? And we have to take that approach with people. Well, I just want to put a little 4x4 four four bed. And they want to buy this cedar frame thing that they don't need. Whatever. If that's what gets them to do it, fine. And then help them so they don't fail. And then when they have success with that, go, when they go, I want to go bigger, okay, well, you can't afford to do it. With these pre-made kits, let's let's look at how we can do something like this, and it's that approach in every walk of life. If teaching somebody to make a gallon of cheap cider gets them interested in mead, which gets them buying honey from their local honey producer, good, fine. 
If it starts making them say, gee, I wonder what this would be like with blueberries, and they go to the store and they buy conventional blueberries and throw it in there, this is good. And then next week they're at Lowe's and they see blueberry plants for sale for four bucks. They buy ten of them and put them in their flower beds. Great. And that's the approach we need to take. And as we step out and do more and more, we need to be creating as many on-ramps for onlookers as possible. Because what will happen is if somebody comes here and looks at the totality of what we've done on this property, you know what they'll say, man, I wish I could do this, but I just can't. It's just too much. Well, we, we, what do you got? What do you got? Oh, we got this little backyard. And all. Hey, here's aquaponics. Check this out. So you could do in 64 square feet. Buy everything at Tractor Supply. You know? Or you can use recycled materials. Here's what the recycled materials look like. Let's go out to the garage. This is an IBC. And then the wife goes, well, that kind of looks ugly. Okay, well, we, you can either board it in, or you can use these stock tanks like this, and it will cost less in materials, and this is what that could look like. Well, okay, I'm willing to do that. Now they've stepped off on the same foot at the same time on a journey. Whereas, well, if you do that, you're wrong. That journey never begins, and you never have the opportunity to find out where it leads. We need to make this stuff cool, fun, and easy, and something people want to do. You know how you do that? You feed people. I bring somebody here, I freaking feed them. I take them around the property, and we start just breaking shit off, going, here, you can, I can eat this? Hell yeah, you can eat that. You know, family members that would have never been into this are putting gardens in, asking me, what do I plant? I don't know, plant everything and see what grows. I mean, sometimes that's the answer, right? And, and if we're going to start having this nitpicking conversation among ourselves, we better make sure our shit's straight before we start talking from an ivory tower. Because the reality is, most of us have done a lot of good and will continue to have our vices because we're human. So what? I won't apologize for anything in my lifestyle right now, including some, some things that are a little bit excessive. You know what? I've worked hard. I want those things in my life. That's the way it's going to be. And if I have to give those last things up, then I would never take this journey that's led not just me to do a lot of really cool things, but hundreds, if not thousands of people look at what I'm doing and emulate it and go find their own way and do it better and say, you know what, Jack's wrong. We can do that better. We can reduce those inputs even further. Okay, great. Go do it. You have the time, the technology, the knowledge, the opportunity, whatever it is, go capitalize on it. And I bet you if we analyze everything, there's a place where I'm doing something better than you and you're doing something better than me with every single person out there. You're making a better conscious decision than I am, and somewhere else I'm making a better conscious decision than you are. That's not a competition. That's freaking reality. And I want as many people as possible to take one step in the right direction. Because that will lead a, a significant number of them to take two, which will lead a significant number to take three. I don't know how many I've taken. But I know that some number of them will go way past me, and that's great. And I'll look at them and I'll get inspired and say, well, I can do this one more thing, or I never even thought of that. This is how we restore our world to what it can be. This is how we transform society from what it is today, which is agricultural, to horticultural. Agriculture in itself, the way we do it, is not sustainable, and it is a mining process at this point. We're literally mining rock phosphate to grow plants. It doesn't have to be that way. And there will always be a place for smarter, better, large-scale agriculture for the population of this planet. But if we can move some food production 
into pretty much every place that there's an opportunity to do it, then we can transform everything more back to what it was like a couple hundred years ago. And the, the effects of this would be magnified a million times what you can imagine. Just in species diversity, in, in moderation of, of, of climate experience. I'm not talking about global warming or cooling or anything like that. I'm just saying if you have more trees in a city, you have an average cooler temperature in any part of it. Let's get genius to figure that out. If you put enough new trees into an area, you actually create a rainfall effect from transpiration from the trees. Things like that. We can't even begin to imagine what would happen if we could get the average person to just want to take that one step. That's what today's show is all about. I hope it encourages you to do that and to share it with others. Anyway, guys, that brings us to the uh, end of the primary segment of the show today. And uh, I want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support this show is when you're going to buy something online, consider doing it uh, through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to buy something online. Check out the stuff we've reviewed there. And no matter what you do, if you shop through tspaz, you help support us. Uh, I also have all my Amazon reviews there. And uh, today's product actually fits very well in with what we were talking about today. And it was a good example uh, that actually somebody on the Regenerative Ag Group gave me the perfect way that this is an example today when I, when I mentioned it. So... Um, this is Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic Fertilizer, and you can buy it by the bag on Amazon. And it is a, you know, NPK ratio is important in fertilizers. It's not the only thing we should look at, but it, it's a 4-4-4 product. I mean, it has four parts, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. That means it's balanced, and that means if we're using it as the, as the core of our fertilization, we don't have to figure out where to get more of something else. It's, it's a nice, balanced approach to it. And, and it has a lot more things going on for it than that. One is the ingredients. Uh, it's made with fish meal, fish bone meal, uh, potassium sulfate, rock phosphate, kelp meal, seaweed extract, and earthworm castings. It also contains humic acid, about 5% humic acid, and 2% aloe vera, and yucca extract at about 1%. The aloe vera and the yucca extract in this stuff do more than I think people realize. They do have certain minerals, etc. that's in them. But what, the, what they also do is, is, is this stuff is gotten wet so that it can soak into the soil. Uh, aloe vera and yucca both act as a soil wetting agent, so they help prevent your soil from being hydrophobic and make it better at actually absorbing moisture. The humic acid at 5% is, is like the, one of the number one things you can do for soil is make sure it has a good humic acid content. It helps bring you a little bit toward the acid side if you deal with alkaline issues, with, which was mainly the problem for gardeners out there more than the other way around. Um, but it also makes a lot of the, the minerals and materials and things that are in that soil that the plant wants more available to it, not just that which you've given it with this product. Uh, it also has prebiotic micro microbial food, which means sugars, uh, probably in the form of molasses that actually feeds the soil organisms. Uh, and it has beneficial microorganisms, uh, seven different varieties that it actually inoculates your soil with. Now, here's the comment that was made. It's a perfect example of what we were talking about today. I said this is the, one of the best cost-benefit ratios for the average gardener out there. And he responded with, the best way to do it is to make it yourself and put a link to his farm that he's very proud of, a pretty large farm. You know, if you are uh, farming 20 acres or 10 acres, 1,000 acres or something like that, from a cost-benefit analysis, you probably can make biological-based fertilizers for less than you could ever buy them for. If you're running a garden, 
if you're running multiple garden beds, um, you know, you're talking about two bags of this stuff carrying you through a year. No, you can't. You're not, and you should be making compost and things like that, but you're not going to get the same results you are from using a product like this. So, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Because I think a lot of times people want to be right in principle, but instead of worrying about, and then they got the wrong principle. I'm all above principle, above preference, but what's the principle? The principle is that we're going to put all this time, money, and energy into growing a garden, some damn food better come out of it. And we want to do that in a low environmentally impactful way. This product does this. 100% organic, 100% natural, and it works. And you don't have to use very much of it. That's what I love about it. Uh, so I really recommend you check it out. And I have a whole fertility regime. It's made of um, liquid kelp, garret juice, uh, mycorrhizal fungi inoculant, and this Dr. Earth stuff. And if you go to the article that I have up today that's at tspaz.com or just on the website and scroll down and take a look at it, you'll see there's a tag there for fertility, and I have all four of them in one place. This fertility regime works. There's two other chelated products that I uh, want to add to it for you guys that I will in the future, and I'll put that all together. And, and my plan long term is to develop for the average gardener. I'll say that again. Bro. I don't go take this Dr. Earth stuff and buy it by the ton and go shovel it onto my food forest berms. The different biological process working there. But for my, my raised beds and stuff like that, my wicking beds, my God, this stuff's amazing. And for the people, for where you're doing that intensive gardening culture, this uh, fertility regime that I've come up with, it doesn't just work, it works in spades. And I've tested it by removing one component and doing it side by side And saying, when I take away the fungal inoculation, oh, there's the visible difference. Okay, if I take away the Dr. Earth, oh, there's the visible difference. There's the yield difference. In every instance, these products that I put into this regime, when you take one away, you have a negative result, sufficient that the product pays for itself. And, and we, again, we use very little of these products, and we develop biological systems. And this is, an, again, an example of we can be a purist or we can be a pragmatist. And you know what? You can tell me not to, 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 to uh, fertilize peppers because they won't produce as much. You have your scangly little yellow pepper plant that, that dies. And I have my great big giant green pepper plant. You say, oh, it's got too much energy. It's not going to produce. Everybody knows that. And then I'm weighed down at the end of the year with giant bags of peppers, and you're not. And, and that's, that's reality. And that's what I've tried to bring to today's show. This is a great product. It's the best fertilizer product I've found for the gardener out there. Um, and if I knew a better one, I'd recommend it. If you look at it, I have no loyalty of brand. My uh, my kelp brand is from GS Plant Foods. Uh, this product is from Dr. Earth. Uh, my, uh, my recommendation for a foliar and soil drench is from Howard Garrett. And uh, my fungal inoculation is from a company called Endo. So I I just picked the best, and that's what I brought to you. And I hope that many of you use it this year. And I look forward to seeing many abundant gardens and abundant tables full of abundant food as a result of that. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. On some levels, it's totally disconnected from what we talked about today, and on other levels, it's really dead on. It's by a guy named Michael Schenker, who's an independent artist I've never heard of. John Adam found this. The song's called How Long, and it's kind of like a kind of 80s metal rock sound to it. Not my taste in music anymore, really. But I have to admit, like like 19-year-old Jack Spirico in his Pontiac uh, uh, Grand Prix, yeah, I used to drive around my, you know, amped up stereo blasting music and very much the sound, right? Um, and I do like it. The, the message of the song, though, is kind of what's more important to me. The overriding message is this is about overseas wars. 
And how long are we going to fight for our freedom? And, and, and what freedoms will we have left when we're done with this fight? It, it, what it makes me think about, like, what's going on right now? We have, we have high school students being manipulated to ask for government to take away freedom while we say that we should respect and thank the men and women that are overseas fighting for freedom. And there's a hell of a lot more damage being done right here at home to our freedoms than is ever being done abroad. Seriously, if you look at the way that the people the people in charge are running this country right now and the freedoms that are, have been lost in the last 50 years. So what does it do, what good does it do for fathers to hope that their their children come home for mothers to say when will we learn? For families to weep over a draped casket under the guise of fighting for freedom when our own people seem to be the greatest threat to our freedoms that we have today. That's what I get out of this song. Again, the uh, the style's not really my... I, I like it. I just It's not what I daily listen to anymore. But uh, I know a lot of you guys do. And one of the, I want to say here, like first I want to just thank John Adam for doing some really cool stuff and getting me out of my comfort zone with music. But also because I think that you know this is a, this is a big audience. There's over 150,000 people in this audience, and music is very subjective. You and I might love the same song. Put another song on that you love and I'll hate it. Put another song on I love and you'll hate it. And then another song on we both like, kind of. Then another song that we both love, and then another song that we both hate. And then another song that you love and I hate. I mean, it's just that's how music is. And so it's great to have somebody to go outside my comfort zone and bring this stuff to us and uh, expose you guys to a lot of different diverse talent. Again, independent artist, pretty cool guy. Check out his YouTube channel, etc. Uh, in today's show notes. With that, indeed, how long? With that, it's been Jack Spirgo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.